For the Peterson Automotive Museum, this is Car Stories. Today we are trackside at the Thermal Club out in Thermal, uh, about about 20 minutes outside of Palm Springs. We're doing the Peterson Invitational, and our guest of honor is 85 Indy 500 winner Danny Sullivan, who's been nice enough to sit down and talk with us one-on-one. Danny, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, it's great to be here. What a facility, huh? It, this is, if you are into cars uh, and driving fast, this is Disneyland. I mean, this is probably the most fun you can legally have in a car. Well, I'd say that. And also what I like is it's that club atmosphere, a little bit like a country club. Yeah. And you, if you got your cars and you can base them here, the facilities that they're building are uh, blow you away. I mean, they're spectacular homes. Uh, they can stay overnight. You know, it's it's got all the permitting. to You can live in them mm-hmm. with, with your garage downstairs. And take your car out and I want to go drive. Yeah, oh, and they've got three different tracks, and BMW's got it. They're building their own track to the side of it as part of the thermal group, and uh, it's it's an action-packed place. And the track is fantastic, great runoff area, curbing, very wide. It's fifty-nine feet wide. It's almost as wide as Indy. Mm-hmm. It's a foot short of the width of Indy, and um, you know it's they the layout's good. I, I saw an aerial view of one of it. it. Looks like the old Riverside S's, which was fantastic and if they combine them i think they can get about five miles a track yeah it's it's a pretty large course and i went through those s's in a lotus cup car yesterday in the passenger seat and i i for a minute thought there is just no way we're going to keep traction uh but the driver was you know knew what he was doing and got us through there probably about as quick as he could yeah there's some great mixture of old and new out here and some good cars and uh I think I see this place, too, as a lot of guys that have historic collections are wanting to keep their cars out here because you can just, okay, I think I'm going to go drive, you know, my short wheelbase today and fire it up and go. And the place, and, and a lot of the, there's a lot of tracks around the country, but this one seems to have safety and good runoff areas and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a good, good facility. Very impressed. Well, I'm looking forward to you. Looking forward to talking to you about your career and you know everything you've accomplished, but we'll go back to the very beginning for you with what is your earliest automotive memory? Oh, um, oh earliest memory was my dad had a Oldsmobile station wagon. We always had Oldsmobile station wagons, and he he'd put me you know big old steering wheels back in the mm-hmm. days in the in the fifties sixties and sitting in the steering wheel. And while he drove down the road and let, you know, so I was like a swing set, but I was in a steering wheel. And then uh, I grew up around, uh, we had a farm where I got to drive some farm equipment, a construction business. So I drove, you know, forklifts and bulldozers and tractors and stuff like that. And, uh, but as a kid, I had a, I I put together a little go-kart steering was all pretty good, but the uh, gas was on the left and the brake was on the right because of the way the engine had to mount on the back. So those were my early memories. I hear a lot of times, uh, you know, professional racers really develop their motor skills on go-karts. Uh, yours sounds a little bit more primitive than maybe the 500cc shifter carts, but yeah. But do you do you kind of agree with that? That early on, you know, as you're developing, you're you're also learning driving technique. Uh, I wish I had had the go-kart. I mean, my first experience in a race car or even going to a race or seeing a race car, I was 21 years old. Wow. 
And so I didn't follow it. Uh, a family friend, Dr. Frank Faulkner, who's long since passed away, uh, was with the SCCA, was ACUS and stuff like that, Englishman, but connections in racing. He mm-hmm. had autocross, automobile year, all the books, and he had a Mini Cooper, and, and he had pictures of he and every you know known star in, in Formula One and everything. Those were my early members of, of the racing. And um, so I didn't really get the go-kart experience. Uh, mine was just a putt-putt to drive around yeah. the neighborhoods. Of course, you know, you terrorized and tried to go through the corners as fast as you could and, and all that sort of stuff. But um, I think go-karting, anything you can do with a motor, a shifter, uh, wheels, whether it's a little dirt bike, uh, whatever, as a kid, really develops the talents. And not just for racing. I'm just talking about your motor skills for driving and all that type of thing. And you said, though, you didn't really get seat time behind a wheel until you were 21. Right. So why? what was the, the late start in life? Because that's, that's pretty late on for a professional race car driver. Well, it, it was, but I, I was bumming around in New York, and the, the good doctor was trying to get me to do something with my life and other than working as a waiter and so forth. So I, I uh, said, well, I want to try racing. And so he sent me to a driving school for my 21st birthday, Jim Russell School in England. And um, they didn't have many schools at that time or, if, or any over here in the U.S. It was really English. And um, uh, Jackie Stewart had suggested that to Frank. I didn't know Jackie at the time, but he said, oh, if you're going to have a young lad starting, you need to get him you know, wow. the driving school. And uh, went there with it, and Frank said, here's the caveat. Uh, if Jim Russell says you have talent, then we can talk about pursuing it. If he doesn't, you have to return to college. (laughs) And um, that was a big motivator for me. But to be fair, when I sat down in the car the very first time, it was everything that I ever wanted to do. Now, that's easy. The hard part was then, okay, how do we find the money? He was an academian. I was working as a waiter. We didn't have, you know, much money between us. So it was a long slog to get there but where i was impressed particularly with the go-karts was that my teammates at the time when i very when I, as i moved up in drives they had all started at five six seven years old in go-karts yeah and had you know i'm racing against guys with 12 15 years of experience that's the same age as i am and uh um and I, again that i'm not saying that i'm not knocking that i'm not I'm not trying to be negative about it, but I just think it's a great basis. It's no different than any sport. You see these kids that are uh, playing pro tennis at mid-20s or golf at mid-20s. All of them started at an early age. Yeah, I think even if you look at a professional football player, the majority of them played Pop Warner or Pee Wee football. So exactly. You know, anything you want to really become a pro in, you you know, by the time you're old enough to go pro, you probably have over a decade experience. Did you naturally take to the car then? I did. Yeah. I, I mean, I I think I did. I yeah. didn't struggle with racing lines. I mean, they would say, "Here's the the deal," but it was for me. It seemed like, yeah, that that seems you know logical, and so, and it's um, and I want to I want to say one other thing about the um, that we you know we were touching on on the age and and all that and the kids that are in sport. If it was today, I would have never been able to succeed. And why is that? Because everybody wants everybody capable of going into Formula One at 21 years old. Yeah. You know, I would have never been able to do it. 
I would have just been too old for almost most categories. Yeah, it, it is funny because I, I love watching Formula One. And when you hear about someone like a Jensen Button or Fernando Alonso being referred to as an old man or, you know, yeah. on their way out. And then you find out they're 32. 32. Yeah, yeah they're, exactly. Well, what's his name? Uh, Verstappen who's in this year. He's 17. Yeah. You know, they're, I mean, he can't younger. even show up at the airport and rent a car. Well, yeah. I always wonder, and this is, I, I mean, I, I assume this isn't a problem as I think it is. If you're under 21, do they still allow you to pop champagne and drink it if you win? Well, good question. Of course, they're not quite as strict about the the drinking and the age thing yeah. as in Europe as they are. But uh, yeah, good good question. I would I, think I think most of those guys typically don't drink that much of it if they yeah. take a sip. Most of the time, they're just spraying the champagne. And, <laughs> and hopefully, if for shopping wins in uh, in Austin this year, that will be a good problem to have. Yeah, exactly. I, I think they'd cross that bridge when they get to it. So, how soon on did you really? After 21 and taking your first classes, did you really go, this is my future, this is this is what I'm going to do for a living? Well, I wanted to do it right off the bat. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that, that was a lot easier thought of than actually done in reality. Because, you know, you have to raise the money. Um, you know, I've got to move to England. Um, all the problems that, by the way, all the young racers uh, experience right now is how do we get there? How do, and it's not just... The the buying the ride, for example, and having the money to get in a team for the ride. It's how do I live there, you yeah. know? And it's not it's not cheap. And uh, a lot of automobile clubs around the country or around the world support their young racers. There's, I mean, I raced against guys that were Italian that were getting fifty, hundred thousand dollars a year from their automobile club to live. Wow. And I'm over there thinking, well, I've got to raise some money not just for this, but to actually pay the rent and, and put food on the table and that type of thing. And, of course, you couldn't, you know, you can't go in there and do it. You can't get a job because you can't get a work permit. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it's, you know, I assume you're pretty full-time actively working towards racing. Working toward racing, either trying to stay fit, but also trying to raise the sponsorship. So you're you're out there, you know, beating the bushes, trying to, you know, drum up business. Um, so it, it's, it's very, it's a very difficult, uh, task and, and, you know, we, we joked about it, but, you know, if I showed up and said, Hey, guess what? I, I'm, I'm the next great race car driver and, you know, believe in me and all this sort of stuff. I've got the talent, I can do it and so forth. And I only need a couple hundred thousand bucks. Yeah. You're and that's look, cheap. And that's cheap. And people are going to look at you and go, you know, come back, kid, when you, when you've got some trophies or, you know, you've got something to show me. Yeah. And back in those days too, we didn't have podcast or the internet so you social media all that sort of stuff where your backers could get exposure mm-hmm. you know we had to send press clippings and stuff like that but it you know that w- it was non-existent really to speak mm-hmm. of boy and that really makes me sound old but <laughs> but but i'm just saying that the world's come a long way i mean we know everything that's going on in the racing world on the click of a couple of buttons on your computer yeah you can find out what's happening anywhere in the world almost in any race what what do you consider your first big break in racing to be? Well, I'm, there were breaks, there were steps all the way along. You know, all of a sudden you'd win a couple of races, okay, in in a junior category, mm-hmm. and that was a big boost because then maybe a Formula Three team, let's say I was in a Formula Ford, and then a Formula Three team would say, "Wow, I got did pretty good." Let's talk to him and see what he's doing for the future, and does he have some sponsor? You know, da da. And then you'd go in and maybe get a couple right and and get some bump there as well, um, and I think the thing that really where I was about to quit after about nine ten years, 
uh, was I met a guy named Garvin Brown who was heir to Brown Foreman Distillers. And Garvin mm-hmm. liked the racing and, and so forth. And he said, okay, I'll back you. And now I had uh, a mentor. Uh, I mean, Dr. Faulkner was great and was very good for helping me and get there and the connections and all that sort of stuff. But at some point, you need the money. Yeah. And uh, and Garvin said, okay, let's do it. I'll go, you know, I'll go with you and I'll back you. And, oh, this drive, this is a good drive. Great, I'll put up the money to do that. And that's what really kind of carried me into the place where I could actually win some races. And now people were offering me a job and where they're paying me to drive the race cars. And how soon after that you started to then get into Formula One? Well, with Garvin, I started uh, not long after that. We went, yeah. in, we went into Formula One. Um, and I had known Ken Tyrrell um through frank and actually ken was one of the first people i ever knew in racing he and jackie stewart believe it or not and i stayed lived with ken and nora for four months when i first went to england Mm -hmm. um and worked for the Tyrrell formula one team as a gopher and and so forth so uh come full circle you know uh sort of 11 years later ken invited me to come for a test at Paul Ricard with 10 other drivers, Stefan Johansson, people like that, Bruno Giacomelli, you know, the, all the guys at the time that were the up and coming from Formula 3, Formula 2. And I went down and did the test, and uh, and I was quicker than everybody on every lap that I did. And Ken said, well, you selected yourself. See you in Brazil for the next test. And that was it, I mean, I, which was typical of Ken just to be kind of – you know, uh, just blunt and to the point, and we'll see you in Brazil on such and such a date. But I didn't have the drive until I'd done my final test in in uh, in Brazil, and that was it. Uh, so what was then? What was your first race? Was it Brazil or Brazil was the first race? And uh, this is early eighties, eighty three. So this is really some of the high, you know, big big highest. Most exciting parts of Formula One. It was a very exciting, but it was unfortunately for Tyrrell and for me, of course, but it was the beginning of the turbocharged era. Mm. That's when they were coming with the BMW Turbo. The Renault Turbo was probably the best when it first came out. Uh, everybody was switching, and, and Ken still had the Cosworth. Okay. What um What is the, the crowd like? Because and I watch F1 every week when it's on, and the fandom around it just seems like next to maybe the Daytona 500 or the Indy 500, you know, the fandom steadily at every single race just seems outrageous. Well, it's, it's a lot bigger. It was big then, but it's much bigger now again, Mm -hmm. because of TV network, social media, all, all of that. Um, just the press and how it covers it. There's more money involved in it. The sponsors are bigger. The manufacturers are more, putting more into it so they're driving the it up but you also have to remember that that a grand prix is is that country's indy 500 and daytona 500 rolled yeah. to rolled together that's their premier motorsport event except for us especially in a place like brazil oh i mean the, yeah. the country brazil. shuts down to watch a well, race and one of the things which is also what's probably hurt america um is that that they have many great drivers have come out of Brazil. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've had some great drivers, but we don't have a steady flow of them. 
Um, that was why we tried to start the Red Bull Driver Search program that developed Scott Speed and, and so forth. You know, Michael was in there. Scott Speed was in there. Myself, uh, Cheever, uh, Mario, of course, world champion. We've only had two world champions, you know, with he and Phil. And uh, so... Uh, Believe it or not, sports car racing and saloon car racing, as we know it, saloon car racing, but, you know, the DTM type of racing, you mm-hmm. know, that they do in Germany was bigger than Formula One until they started getting guys like Schumacher and Vettel and Heinz Harald Frensen, and they developed Formula One drivers. Sports cars was bigger in Germany than oh, wow. for, within Formula One in terms of fan following. Yeah. Know? Uh, now we have a big fan base of F1 aficionados here in, in the in the country, but we don't have that general public kind of F1 following. No, it it is it has not hit it has not hit the mainstream like uh, NASCAR has, and and but, NASCAR compared to maybe you know uh, football isn't even you know close to what it could be. No, but the, again, the public doesn't have a driver or a number of drivers and competitive cars to cheer for to yeah. pull for. Okay. And, uh, hey, bike racing, okay, Greg LeMond, okay, then Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Forget what happened to Lance, but the Americans really got into it oh, because yeah. he, we had an American winning. It was one for, of ours. One of ours, forget it. And that's one of the reasons that MotoGP's done so well. With We've always had, up until about right now, we've always had a contender in, in MotoGP. Mm-hmm. Okay, from back Kenny Roberts, Fast Freddie Spencer, Wayne Rainey, all, all the guys, you know, that were, have done it over the years. Americans were very well respected in MotoGP because there was always somebody that was champion. Nicky yeah. Hayden was the last champion, but, you know, Colin Edwards. I mean, the, the list goes on. We were always had stature in that deal. We don't in Formula One. And, well, which brings me to you did the Red Bull Driver Search Program, right. and that was to... Which is funny because it's an Austrian company actively looking for an American driver. So well, how did that come about? Well, I'd read an article, in the, believe it or not, in the Financial Times that Dietrich Mateschitz wanted a, a U.S. sort of F1 team. And Dietrich's no fool. He wanted an F1 team, but he wanted the U.S. one because this was as is now the biggest market and he wanted to do something mm-hmm. and and develop something and that way it was a great concept to have an american team da 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 and so forth it, it eventually didn't happen i mean he bought the f1 team but mainly because he had a couple of turndowns from american oem manufacturers um that didn't want to be involved and he wanted to be associated with an iconic us brand mm-hmm. um and and so I wrote, I called him um, through a friend had given me the the number, um, and I called him, and, I, and he said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, uh, you know, I've got this concept about a driver search program. And Patrick Long, who'd been on your show yep. not that long ago, Patrick was pushing me to help an American driver get going in, over there. And I had sent around some emails and some requests from different American companies. Would you back a program and so forth and so on? So I sent Dietrich something. He said, come see me. And I flew to Austria. I was living in France at the time. He went to Austria, saw him, and he goes, okay, I like the idea. Here's what we're going to do. I mean, they had some tweaks. They wanted to change it a little bit, but he liked the concept, shook hands, and that was it, and that's how it started. And, uh, you know, we we had it for five years. Um, when they couldn't make the deal to buy 
the Ford F1 team, mm-hmm. okay, and they ended up buying it, but it, but they didn't get Ford to go along with them in the program, which is what they wanted. Um, then they said, okay, well, then we're not going to do the American driver search program. We're just going to continue driver search program, but we're not going to do the big one that we did for here in America. Yeah. Well, fortunately for them, they, I think they bounced back okay. Well, they did very well, but it was, yeah. it was for me, what was a big disappointment, um, at the time with Ford was that they didn't do it because Red Bull was willing to pay for everything. And here was a way to have Ford Motor Company involved with somebody else doing it. And then they go win four world championships to start in the second year yeah. that they did it right off the bat with Adrian Newey and boom, boom, boom. And for me, that would have been a great way to develop American talent because they would have put them in a lot of the junior formulas like we did with Scott and like we did with a number of other people. John Edwards. I mean, the, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, and going back to Patrick Long on that, Patrick didn't get the, win the drive in the first in the first go. Uh, the first driver search program, but we got him the deal with Porsche. I, I would say his consolation prize, he bounced back okay. Yeah, Patrick's done a, a tremendous job, and and it, uh, kudos to his sort of attitude was yeah. like, okay, I wish I'd gotten that, but I've got a factory drive with Porsche. I'm going to make the most of it, which he has. And, you know, you know, went in Le Mans, went in Daytona, you know, Sebring, all that stuff, the champion. You know, great, kudos to him. And that, But it also just proves that there's a – there are two things. There's a lot of American talent out there, and two, there's another. There's other ways to make it in racing than just Formula One. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, I guess, with people who don't follow racing is, you know, if they if they say, you know, is this person a well-known driver? Is Patrick Long a well-known driver? Is he a successful driver? And it's if you don't follow racing and you know who Patrick Long is, then then he's successful, right? Because there are for every Patrick Long who isn't a NASCAR, isn't an India Formula One, but still has a successful career. There's hundreds of drivers who, who are barely making a living and people have never heard their name. Right. And there's and and a lot of them very, very talented. That's the that's even the more sad part about it. But it's but it's a tough business. It's hard to get there. It's hard to find the money. You got it. And Patrick's got more than just the driving talent. He 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 can talk to the sponsors. You know, he learned he went to work for Porsche, learned German. Mm-hmm. You know, speaks French, speaks Italian. You know, he's integrated himself in the sport, and you you can't always be just kind of standoffish. You've got to you've got to integrate in the sport with the sponsors. You've got to be engaged. This is a twenty four seven passion business. Yeah, and that's something we even discussed on last week's episode. Is you know you you can only be such a good driver. After then, you got to be the world's best spokesperson. You got to, you know, you got to represent these hundreds of companies that are sponsoring you, and and sort of be all things to everybody. Well, you still have to be your own person, but you, that that side of it helps. That's yeah. a, that's part of the requirement. But you know, Nikki Lauda had that mystique of you know always dis- didn't even go up on the podium half the time when he'd win a race. He'd yeah. just leave and go to the airport. So he kind of created a mystique. And I'm not suggesting that to anybody. I'm just saying. But you you still have to be your own person and find where your personality fits mm-hmm. and let them let them develop that as well. So you got it, and that becomes an issue: getting with the right team, getting with the right sponsor that understands you and doesn't try to make you something that you're not. Well, do you think because uh, you know Gene Haas is working on a, a Formula One, an American Formula One right. team? Do you think there is a place for an American race team still, and we can have a winning American driver again? 
I think that there's a definitely a place for an American Formula One team. Definitely. I, I, I don't think that the nationality of the F1 team makes that much difference. But it would be great as an American team is almost as good as an American driver. If they're, if they're successful, something that the public can cheer for. Yeah. Okay. A, a team. Um, the, the thing, and I, I, I keep repeating this, the problem for a driver is it's going to be very hard to cherry pick a driver out of an American series and parachute them into formula one mm-hmm. and expect them to do any good. Yeah. Okay. They have to get their experience in Europe, on the European tracks, learning the people in the sport, from the tire engineers to the you know the mechanics, the team managers. You've got to integrate yourself into the world of sport, not just the U.S. version, okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they talk about a lot of these drivers, you know, even Verstappen, he's going to show up half the tracks he's going to drive on he's never raced on. Okay, but he's been around European racing his entire life because yeah. of his father, and uh, you know that that's a big that's a big factor. It's hard for us to just pick up and go and drop into into with all the teams being based in Europe, except for Gene's team so far. All the teams based in Europe just to all of a sudden become a part of that. Well, uh, and you look at you look at like a McLaren or Red Bull, and you know Red Bull has publicly said we're not going to go hire another professional driver anymore we're just going to cultivate and develop from within we're going to go find the you know the world's fastest 12 year old carters and sort of just take them on and and grow them up uh you know in our own facility well they they get to develop them and see the way they want to go now red bull's got a great program because they they've got a lot of young drivers Mm -hmm. mclaren's is a little tougher program because they took pick one or two it's hard to pick a 12-year-old and think that at 19 years old he's going to actually become a Lewis Hamilton. Yeah. They did very well with Lewis Hamilton, but but and there were some hiccups along the way on on that stuff too because remember a a young man developing, you know, just in life at 19 years yeah. old, they they either kind of like, yeah, okay, I get it or I don't want it or still have the fight of somebody like a Lewis Hamilton. It's hard I think it's hard to be thrown out into that limelight so early on. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough scenario, but but if we don't start getting kids over there, then it'll never happen. It's a little bit if you have the discussion with Wayne Rainey and his Moto America group, mm-hmm. that's a lot of what that's about is trying to develop talent that can go into the back into the MotoGP world because right now we don't have any young guys. You know, Nicky's there, but Nicky's been hurt and, and stuff, you know, and recovering from this surgery and that surgery, and he's won the world championship. Kudos to him. Yeah. Fantastic. And he's still a fantastically quick rider, but he's probably not on the upswing of his career as much as he's on no, the flat I'm part. Just, I mean, just like any boxer or, or anyone, at some point age is the factor. You can be the best in the world, but... And injuries, and, yeah. it, and just beat you up. And then, then that starts, you know, desire starts waning at that mm-hmm. point, too. Because you're just kind of like, oh, do I really want to, you know, I don't really need another surgery. And, you know, probably made enough money. You know, yeah, you stuff. have enough money, you have enough kudos, and you've won a championship. Yeah, so so Wayne's looking at this, Wayne Rainey's looking at this thinking, oh, boy, we, we don't have anybody on the horizon. Nobody's being developed. There's no, there's no series for him. To, to develop. I mean, you have to have the, the place to develop. And uh, Europe still has that in terms of for the car side. 
Um, what Wayne's trying to do is develop the motorbike side here so that the guys th- then can progress and get over there, which is, is a great deal. Yeah. We need to do a similar sort of thing for the, for the car racing side. And I, it, it's a long work in progress, but I, I don't think it's a, an impossible work in progress. No, it's not. I tell you who's doing a good job though on it too is Nissan with the GT Academy. Yeah. And I'm not promoting that just because I've been one of the judges for, yeah. on the American side. The program is fantastic. These kids come out, blows you away how good they are as gamers. And yep. they get into the car and you kind of go, really? That, they're doing that? Really? From just, from the game? And some of these kids don't even know how to drive a manual shift car. Yeah, that, that is funny when you see them get in the car and they right. can't drive a stick. But, but now they've got them where they're getting them into LMP1s, which now when you get into an LMP1, you're talking about similar sort of speed, uh, dynamics, and so forth of a formula car. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, typically, we haven't seen many kids go though from sports cars to Formula One. It's usually Formula cars back to sports cars. Yeah. But I'm saying that these kind of development programs are what we need to develop American talent for the world stage. And I think what what makes Nissan seem so successful is it's working. It it, it sounded like a PR stunt when it was first announced that hey, we're going to take video gamers and test to see if they can drive race cars, but. It's gone on long enough where this is where they're getting their race car drivers and they're winning. They're being very successful. Yeah, with it. The, and they're good. They're yeah. d- d- you know, and they're diverse in terms of nationalities. You know, if anything, Nissan's biggest problem right now is I got so many good drivers they don't have they don't have enough teams to put them in. Yeah, yeah, you they know, need more cars. You know, and uh, you know our last year's winner, uh, Nicholas Hammond. He's a great example from Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. right there by Road America. And uh, fa- fantastic talent, you know, and and uh, he he's got what it takes to make it. And uh, um, those are the type of things that we got to have is more programs like mm-hmm. that for the talent that has an opportunity to get someplace, particularly if they don't have the money. Yeah, I I can't believe we are twenty nine minutes in, and you know you've lived such an interesting life, and you know you know you can speak about racing so well. We have even brought up you've won the Indy five hundred. <laughs> and I guess there's no better way to go into it than what is it like to win the Indy 500? There's nothing quite quite like it. Now, yeah. um, Indy was just uh, – I remember one time here, – here's a, a good summary for me. One time I was getting on a flight, and uh, and I'd won the Pocono 500, and I'd won the Michigan 500. And I actually won Pocono twice, but, I, but I'd won Pocono once in, in Michigan – and I was checking in. I was trying to get on this flight, and the girl goes, "She's looking at her screen. She goes, are you the Indy 500 winner?'" Wow. Now they didn't have the Pocono 500 winner on there. They didn't have no disrespect to that or the Michigan Indy 500. It's a, it's a title that you that goes with you, you know, and uh, it's it's just such a fantastic experience. It took me a long time to actually, you know, pinch myself one time and say. You actually won the Indy 500. That day when you guys started, did you feel like it was going to be a good day? Did you have a feeling that uh, – what are your nerves like? Well, you're always nervous before. First of all, it was my fir- first Indy 500 for Penske. Yeah. Okay. And first Pen- uh, Indy 500 for Miller Brewing was my sponsor at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, so, you know, and this is – Penske's, you know, these guys got a track record. They've yeah. won India a number of times. And I've got the the legendary Rick Mears as a teammate, Unser as a team, you know, it's like, okay, this is 
This is heady this stuff. This is the big leagues. This is the big leagues. And, you know, uh, you know, but you, you, so you have the normal nerves added a little bit because of everything. And what, the other thing with Indy is at that time, it's less so now, but it was a three week buildup. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you came in and practiced and qualified on Friday and Saturday and you raced on Sunday and you were getting ready to go home. You three weeks with yeah. all the hoopla, the parades, the sponsors, dinners, the this, the that, you know. So there's a natural buildup. And when you walk out of Gasoline Alley, there's nothing like it. And you just look down and all it is is a collage of colors. It's people all the way up and down the front straightaway. So there's a, you know, a natural anticipation that this is a big deal. But I I gave up a long time ago trying to think, you know, I'd be on a pole in a race and it would turn out to be a disaster. Or I'd be back in the pack and it would turn out to be a good race. So I gave up a long time ago trying to, you know, anticipate the result or, you yeah. know, think that I was going to have a good day. And when the spin occurred um, with Mario um, and I didn't hit anything, you know, of course, I'm, you know, yellow, wrapped up, went back in, got new tires. You know, you're kind of wrapped up in the moment and you're, you know, very excited. And, okay, get back out. Okay, whew, that was lucky. You know, we're we're still in this thing. And then I was catching Mario again and uh, Howdy Holmes and Tom Sneva got tacked up, uh, tangled up and going into turn one. And he, he, Tom spun, but he was going straight down the track, straight down the groove. Oh wow! And I'm you can't jump on the brakes, and I'm slow, and I just missed him. Mm-hmm. And he and he went up, and I think he hit the outside wall, but he spun up out of the way. And I thought, wow, that was close, because uh, now it's right in front of me. And uh, and I thought, well, that's close. I've I'm, I've got a pretty lucky day going here, but I still never thought about the win. It's almost. I mean, do you almost think I don't want to jinx myself? I do, exactly. I don't want to think about it. And then there was a yellow. One of the Whittingtons had an accident with seven laps to go. And I had a pretty good lead on Mario. A pretty good lead. I think four seconds or something like that. But that's, you know, that's still a pretty substantial lead with seven laps to go. And my car was running great. Everything was going right. And the yellow comes out. And I thought, oh. And they slowed the pace car down to try to get it so that we weren't going to finish under a yellow. And I kept saying, oh, I'll tell them I'm overheating. I was trying anything, speed it up, because I wanted it to finish. Yeah. I was, and, you know, not many people that lead in the last 20, started to lead in the last 20 laps and win the race. It's a funny the, It is, because the, there are so many lead changes. Uh, there's probably more lead changes in that race than any other race. Yeah, and especially at the end. And I look in my rearview mirrors, and it's one guy, I can't remember who it was, um, Michael Andretti. Mm-hmm. And a Mario. And I thought, well, Michael's not going to hold him up. So, you know, the restart was going to be critical. And I tell you, if I'd had a hammer in my car that I could have broken the mirrors, I would have done that just so I didn't have to look and see what what Mario was doing back there. Because, you know, he's a tough he's a tough competitor. And, and he wanted that second 500 win really bad. Yeah. I and um, and so I just did that. I, I, man, I think I restarted coming out of turn two. I was so you know, so nervous, but anyway, it took off and, and I think my fastest lap of the race, I don't, if I remember was second or third last, last lap of the race. I was so nervous. I didn't want to look at anything. Just, you know, just be smooth, be quick. Don't do anything. Don't do anything radical. Just, you know, and, uh, it all turned out. But, yeah. And, and it's not, I mean, it looks like a fairly simple track, but it's, oh, no, it's no, a no. hard track. It's a hard track because 
the track gets dirty, there's wind blowing, there's garbage that's blown out of the grandstand, you know, stuff all around, the the track's changing, it it gets slick in some places. That's why they run wind socks too, you know, uh, down the back and, and down the front straightaway because the wind will affect your car. You know, you're carrying almost no wing in the car at all. Mm-hmm. And so the wind socks are, they can either push the nose down or push the back or, you know, push the nose away, depending on which way it goes. And it's a, it's a big factor. And, and there's so much at stake for the Indy 500. Yeah. It's the Indy 500. It's, is know. there pressure racing for Penske because it is Penske that they need to keep this going? Or, you know, is, is there added pressure from that? The pressure really at Rogers, organization they're great okay they were a fabulous group of people that i worked with and so forth roger gives 150 percent to give you the most competitive cars that doesn't mean it always works out you know some of the cars that we had were not the best cars but he's trying to give you the best the best people and everything so for you to have the best result so the pressure is really that you have to give your best it all falls on you it falls on you yeah but it's not because the whole team is trying to give their best. And Roger's a great, you know, at one stage, he was probably the best sports car driver in the world. Oh, wow. And so he's a racer. And Roger wants to race and win. You can't ask for a better boss than that. No, it doesn't sound okay. like Because he's not interested in the, you know, it's it's not money. It's the racing. It's winning. Mm-hmm. Winning, winning, winning. And uh, great organization, great organization to drive for. Is there pressure? Yeah, because you want to. You have to put the numbers up on the board. You, mm-hmm. you know, everybody thinks that, and we've seen this with a lot of young drivers. You know, you get to a stage where you think you've made it. That's when the work really starts. I can imagine. Okay, you think you, oh, I signed for Penske. Isn't this great? Now the pressure's on because you you got to step up and deliver. They're yep. paying you to deliver, and. uh As Rick told me one time, he says it's putting numbers up on the board. And that's it. That's all that you have to do. That's all all it counts. Well, Danny, thank you so much for coming in. My my last question would be for anyone who's listening to this who, you know, there's still time to get into driving. What what advice would you have for someone? Just pursue it. But if you're going to pursue it, pursue it 110%. Give it everything you got and, and don't take no for an answer. Find, find a way to make it happen. Well, Danny Sullivan, uh, thank you so much for coming in. And uh, everybody, you can keep listening for more episodes on iTunes and carstories.com every Tuesday. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. Thank you.